You are listening to the Global Jewish Voices podcast, part of the Global Voices podcast series, hosted by me, Victor Esses. The Global Voices podcast is a series presented by Global Voices Theatre, where we engage with the writers and translators behind their popular live events, who are based all over the world. In this series, we discuss how identities and personal histories are explored in theatre, as we look at the vastness and complexities of the Jewish experience and the joys and possibilities that exist. Philip Arditi was born and brought up in the Jewish community of Istanbul in Turkey. He moved to London as a late teen and was part of the founding of the Arcola Theatre whilst also training as an actor at RADA. He has worked as an actor on stage and on camera in English, Turkish, French and Italian, including plays at the London's National Theatre in West End and series with BBC and HBO. He has translated several plays into Turkish. In 2020, he joined the newly formed Mina Arts UK and is continuing to serve in its steering committee. Welcome, Philip. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Yes, thank you very much. How are you? I'm very good and excited to have this conversation. Where are you right now? I am in Peckham in South London, South East London. Uh, like I have been for most of the last <laughs> two years or something, you know, this lockdown has sort of, you know, this is, um, yeah, this is where my kind of home is. And uh, definitely I've been very uh, consistently here recently. <laughs> so how was it growing up Jewish in Istanbul? Uh, wow. <laughs> That's a big question. Well, it was amazing and also uh, I have to admit, quite difficult. Um, it was, of course, amazing because Istanbul is an amazing city. And because also Istanbul has a really great history of minorities, of religious and ethnic minorities. Uh, and these minorities are communities in themselves that are intermingled and have their own lives. And I think, and go back a long, long, long way. And I think it was really felt really special to be part of that kind of community. I have to admit, I kind of felt special to be part of that community in that kind of a special city. <laughs> without, without uh, egging it on too much. But yeah, that's kind of the truth. Uh, but at the same time, of course, it was very difficult because, you know, um, state violence, state oppression in Turkey is a reality. It's not just happened in the last 10, 15 years under Erdogan. It has been something that's been real for a long time. It definitely was real when I was growing up. Uh, I was born uh, only two or three months after I was born. There was a, a very violent coup d'etat in Turkey uh, where a kind of brewing civil war was brought to a violent end by the military and uh, the, the 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 repercussions of that followed on through the 80s and well into the 90s so uh, uh, yes that was one of the reasons why i suppose it was difficult and i suppose another reason why it was difficult was also because of just general open and closed you know low level and quite obvious high level anti-semitism when you say there's a coup d'etat, there's uh, these political happenings and violence, how is the community affected? Is, is there a difference? I think, um, like any minority community anywhere in the world, 
I feel like it's always really more sensitive. It's like, you know, more sensitive to these bigger, bigger uh, currents and to these bigger kinds of political, socioeconomic movements. It's just like here, you know, you the poor people bear the brunt of those policies much more than middle class or upper class people, you know, people who are on the on the wealthy end of of the spectrum. And I think in Turkey, definitely, even though you know minorities, uh, um, Armenian, uh, Greek, Jewish, Kurdish, all kinds of minorities, uh, you know, Levantine. Uh, 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 are of all different classes. They are they are working class, lower class, middle class, whatever. I think when it comes to those bigger movements of authoritarianism and coup d'etats, they kind of were on the um, more uh, vulnerable end of things. Always. What kind of food did you grow up eating? <laughs> well, different kinds of food. I have to say, my mom was not a an amazing Sephardi uh, food cook but definitely my grandmothers uh, I mean I grew up close to one of my grandmothers Carmen who is actually a character in the play um, and uh, yeah she kind of cooked all the regular Turkish Jewish kinds of foods you know a lot of um, a lot of uh, what we call in Turkey zeytinyağlı which is a lot of vegetables with uh, olive oil and cooked on a bed of olive oil and onion and uh, and tomato paste um but also uh but also lots of different kinds of borekitas which is a very particular and kind of famous turkish uh, pastry which is made of um, vegetables sometimes cheese other times it's delicious um all sorts of kind of pastries and bureks and you know just really lovely stuff <laughs> Yeah, sounds amazing. I'm hungry now. <laughs> and um, did you go to a Jewish school? No, I didn't. I uh, I went to a French school. Uh, I went to a state school to start with, uh, and then I moved to a more French school. Uh, I didn't go to a Jewish school. There, the Jewish school, uh, there was one when I was growing up, um, and it didn't take you know, it was quite a small school, I suppose. But what I did do um, is go to a, a, what were clubs. There were clubs in Turkey, there, in Istanbul. There's about four different clubs for Jewish youth to go to on a regular basis, you know, usually on Saturdays, you know, is where we know. And, and, and they're divided in according to geography, where you live, and also a little bit according to maybe, maybe a little bit according to class or the kind of the part of the community that you're from and politics a little bit maybe but yeah so i went to one of those and i spent mm, probably all my saturdays from the age of i don't know 10 11 till about 17 um going to the club you know and so that involved parties it involved of course it involved uh, a central part of that activity was what was called a, a group actually it was called literally group and it was maybe about um, up to 10 young people com coming together in one house, one of uh, each one of our, uh, I mean, in, in the house of one of us every time um, and be to, to be taught the history of Judaism effectively. And, you know, by one of our elders who probably himself 
at that point looked like was 30 to me, but they were probably just 16 or 17, you know, uh, and they were called madrich, which was, uh, uh, I think is a Hebrew word for uh, guide. Um, so yeah, that was the central part of that club. And it was a fantastic activity. And, you know, we got our effectively our Jewish education in an extremely unreligious and very social kind of way. You know, it was a really community exercise where uh, the 16, 7 year old was teaching the 10, 11, 12 year olds all about us, basically. Yeah, I grew up in Sao Paulo, as you know, and yeah, we also had lots of these clubs. Uh huh. Did you did you go to one? Yes, I went to one called Netza. Oh wow! Okay, <laughs> and was it a bit similar? Every like Saturday, it was similar. Um, yeah, it was one for mostly Sephardic Jews used to go to that particular one because they used okay. to be okay. Uh, Abonim Dror or Bnei Akiva. There's lots lots of them, but Netzach, yeah, was the closest to ah. our neighborhood and our school and. Uh, yeah, it was a huge part of growing up, isn't it? Like Yeah, 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 that was a big part, yeah. And we used to do, there were parties and theatre plays, of course, mm. documentaries. I used to run, for a while I ran the newspaper, there was a newspaper which was called Goes Look, which was, Goes, which was basically sun uh, uh, glasses, you know. Oh, oh, sorry, Goes Lamb, which was observing, you know. And, and it was just basically on the wall. It was just a, a cabinet on the wall, you know. And and it was just like just we used to stick things on the wall, and that was the newspaper. It was kind of fun. <laughs> amazing. Yeah, it's funnily enough, I I edited the magazine of the of the movement as well, the of the group. Um, oh right. Time, oh how funny. Which was called them that, which I have no idea oh. what it means. <laughs> I need to research. <laughs> um, so. Did you grow up speaking Ladino? Uh, not really, no. I grew up... Um, no, no. Uh, my Both my grandmas speak Ladino and they passed it to my parents a little bit. But uh, mainly my second language... My f language was French. Um, you know, in, in Turkey, I think, maybe that's also a social class thing, you know. Um, my granddad didn't like to speak Ladino because he thought it was lower class. I think it's a very typical community story, you know, and French was the better language. And my grandma, even though, I mean, they all, their first languages, of course, was uh, Ladino. But um, just for those who don't know what Ladino is, could you tell us? I can. Yes, of course. Yes. I mean, the Turkish Jewish community came to the Ottoman, what was the Ottoman lands in more or less 1492, having left Spain having run away from the, having been chased away from, by the Inquisition. And they came with their, what was their language, which was the Spanish of 1492, uh, you know, and, and they continued speaking that language for the rest 500 years. Um, of course, the language evolved to include words of, in Turkish, words in Hebrew, and if they were in Turkey, I think uh, Greek, uh, Sephardis ha ha had Greek words. Um, so, yeah, it was a language, that, you know, that the community spoke all the way up to my grandmother's generation. And I think that's more or less uh, uh, correct in as far as it could be said that my dad's generation was the first generation that left the ghetto 
I mean, there was no official ghetto, but but what could be referred to as the ghetto. Um, and so he's really the first generation that uh, my parents' generation is the first generation that kind of stopped uh, uh, speaking it as their f- completely their first language. Yeah. And do you know why this generation suddenly decided to change? I think it was soci- I think it was socioeconomic um, factors. They were not. I think. Yeah. Uh, do after the Second World War probably. Uh, well. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I, th- I think probably with this, with, with, with the, um, with, with the, uh, yes, actually, I think I do know, with the establishment of the Turkish Republic, for a start, there was a huge campaign in the 30s uh, to uh, have the citizens speak Turkish, because, Tur- <laughs> I mean, there was an issue with the Ottoman Empire at the beginning of the 20th century, which was that there was no one ethnicity, like most countries anyway, you know, it was just lots of different kinds of ethnicities, you know. So so there was a big campaign, of course, to uh, homogenize, ethnically homogenize the population. And part of that was to kill a large part of the population <laughs> in the form of the Armenian genocide. It's not funny, of course, but, you know, they, they that was one of it. Another... Another thing was to chase away uh, Greeks, you know, another big part of the population of Anatolia in order to homogenize it. And so continue fast forward to the 30s and 40s. There were posters on the walls saying Vatandash Türkçe Konuş, which means citizen speak Turkish. Because people were speaking all sorts of other things, you know, they were speaking, I don't know, Greek, uh, probably uh, Assyrian, there was there are Assyrians, Laz, which is, a la, you know, la, language from the north of Turkey, Ladino, of course, Armenian, you know, and, and so there was really an assimilation program. And I think my dad was brought up into, brought into a world where he was now Turkish rather than Jewish. Yeah, I, um, I have friends of my generation who uh, grew up Jewish in Istanbul and they say their parents didn't want them to be recognized. Even when they speak Turkish, they didn't want to have that accent that maybe if you speak Ladino, you would speak a bit different. Of course, of course. And as a matter of fact, you can tell that story. You can, you know, when I was choosing the names from my characters, you can tell that story in the names of people. You know, if you look at my grandmother's generation, a lot of Jewish people are, have have very, very Spanish names. Perla, Carmen, uh, you know, Rosita, uh, or, or, or very, very Spanish kind of names and Hebrew names, of course. And then moving on, you sort of become, have more and more Turkish names. And in my generation, I'm a real outlier i think most of my most of people in of my um, generation have much more turkish sounding names yeah i love the title of your play extinct um to me obviously it speaks of many jewish communities around the world and and uh, and what it does in focusing on a sephardic community which we don't hear a lot about as well philip's play extinct speaks of a Turkish Jewish family's transgenerational reckoning with their Jewish identity, past and present, amidst the protests in Istanbul in 2013. Philip will now read an extract for us. Well, this is Maurice and Yusuf, Maurice the father and Yusuf, his son, uh, talking about halfway through the play. Maurice says, It's not about me. 
It's about what we are. You know, ultimately, we'll be to blame for this, don't you? When things go to shit in this country, somebody has to pay. Somebody always pays. And when it comes to paying, when it comes to money, when it comes to cash, it comes to us. It comes knocking on our doors. It comes smashing our windows. That's why you have to be careful. That bright summer morning when I got on the boat with your granddad to accompany him into town for work, there were dozens of other men there doing that daily journey. Big textile lords, well-dressed, silent, smoking, reading their newspapers. I felt so proud to be with them, but on the pier, it was your granddad they arrested. Currency fraud? Half the men on that boat lived from buying and selling currency. Some of them much worse, but that didn't matter. They couldn't be touched because they were big shots. They had to pick on the weak one to make an example of. He was a Jew and that's all they needed to know. You're a Jew and that's all you need to know. So this is Yusuf's reply. London Plain, Japanese Pagoda, European Oak, Silver Linden, Tree of Haven. They've put stickers on the trees with their history and poems dedicated to them. There's dance pieces about the trees and prayers for those who want to. We know what we're standing for. If you look from far, we might all seem the same, but when you come close, we're all different. Just like a forest. And if you look close enough at a colony of penguins, I'm sure they've all got their different stories of pain, joy and vulnerabilities. But for now, we're united. And for the first time, maybe ever, I feel strong. A strong penguin with a camera. That's brilliant. Yeah, I just love um, the images, you know, the penguin metaphors and the difference between generations as well, obviously, like how they deal with their identity. And, and Yusuf wants to belong in that wider Turkish society and, and the world. Can you please tell me why did you choose this excerpt? Yeah, I mean, I think it really goes to the heart of the conflict between between the two or the father and the son, you know. Um, and for me, it's really about the paranoia that's inherited uh, within the within my community, effectively. I think I was very aware when I was growing up that mm, there were some fears that I was meant to have, even though I hadn't really experienced some of those things or even though the things I'd experienced were more complex or different or quite particular I was kind of felt under pressure to inherit a particular kind of fear and a particular kind of paranoia and I think that paranoia very much for me in my particular family was related to crowds and to groups of people in the streets you know because my family and obviously a lot of other Jewish families had experienced uh, maybe one, maybe more pogroms or similar kinds of mobs in the streets hunting for minorities. And so when I, so I think that, yeah, so when I was in Gezi myself and I was protesting and I felt I had a very different feeling about that crowd, you know. I suppose I was trying to find peace in how different mine and my dad's feelings about crowds were <laughs> you know how how is it that my community is so 
of course, scared and scarred by mobs in the streets and big crowds. And now I was having this experience, which was extremely enlightening and invigorating and exciting and empowering. Yeah, and, and I, I really relate. You talk about loneliness and, and when you're part of a smaller community, it can feel very detached and lonely and, and that togetherness is very powerful, isn't it? How much of the play is autobiographical? Well, I mean, I do, I, I do quite like autobiographical work and I am, I'm working on another piece which is much more autobiographical, it's a co-written piece. But in this case, I would say quite a lot of it is, but, but it's, none of it is, it's all kind of work through a particular sieve you know it's really gone through a kind of process um i had a grandmother who wasn't really like this uh i suppose like with any other play she had a flat yeah i mean some elements are real but a, a lot of the elements are not also you know and yeah i mean obviously this i was uh, in gizzi park but none of these conflicts took place around that, the, that those protests and all that. So yeah, I mean, I don't really know. It's kind of based on on me, of course, and on my dad to a certain extent, and my grandma. But at the same time, it's also on my uncles and my, you know, all the other kind of dads that I know in the community. And to be honest, now I'm a dad myself, and and uh, it's very much surprised me as I'm writing that. I started out by thinking that I was the son, but as I'm writing the dad more and more, uh, now particularly recently in, in a new draft, I'm just sort of, I'm really relating to him, you know, because I have these kinds of responsibilities and and I'm thinking in very different terms. You, you have more at stake when you have children, mate. Yeah, it's very different. The priorities change, don't they? You know, people start thinking in much more security and long-term ways, you know. Yeah, which is interesting. Some people who are not religious in some communities, they also become more religious and, and other things like that. What made you want to tell this story? Um, well, <laughs> actually, I wanted to write a story about, you, do you remember during the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, the Board of Deputies wrote a letter, which was very, uh, you know, uh, in... Uh, uh, which was very critical of the Jeremy Corbyn leadership and of the Labour Party. So I really wanted to write something about that. That was to do with anti-Semitism, no? That was to do with anti-Semitism. The Board of Deputies, which is one of the kind of leaders of the Jewish community in England, uh, published these this kind of quite strong, strong letter criticizing Corbyn and the Labour leadership for the anti-Semitism not having done enough in there. And I really wanted, and that made, I really wanted to write something about that. But then, of, of course, I realized what I wanted to do really was to write about the elders in my community where I grew up. And so I suppose I would say this is quite a live debate for my generation in Turkey, I think and particularly my generation of progressives within minority communities. Do we have the courage to come together and engage in a kind of resistance which might harm our, our prospects of living, potentially? Or are we, are we happy to conform for the potential security? I mean, I'm saying potential because it's a bit unclear whether that really gives you security. It's a bit unclear whether 
the Turkish Jewish community's attitude and closeness to the state and to the status quo in Turkey has made their lives any better or more comfortable or easier. I think that's a, that's not very clear, or at least, you know, we, we're not sure about that. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Antisemitism, the way it comes in waves and, and the way, like what you described, like you, the, many communities are close to the status quo in one generation, but another generation, they are completely ostracized. So it's a very specific form of, of prejudice and, and its function in society. Would you agree? Absolutely, yeah. Yes, completely. Um, but also, I think uh, something about, uh, you know, something about the Black Lives Matter movement also uh, actually uh, made me think about minorities, you know, and as a matter of fact, in an early attempt, I was trying to write, uh, I, I thought about writing a, uh, 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 you know, a family whose child might have attended the Black BLM protests. And I think I was just imagining about protest, I was thinking about protest and resistance and, you know, and, and the benefits and harm that that might bring to to the communities, particularly if you come from this kind of more uh, vulnerable community. Do you feel the need to tell these stories? Um, is there a lot out there about that particular community you grew up in? I think there's a lot of, uh, there is a, I think there is a lot, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot in Turkey and I think there's a lot in the minority communities of Turkey and the relationship between them, yeah. I mean, I feel very um, uh, full, I suppose, when I think about um, the Armenian community, the Armenian genocide, and the land of Anatolia, and the things that have happened there. And and I think it's an extremely, you know, rich sort of soil to harvest, for want of a better word, as an artist. <laughs> and, um, you know, yeah. And uh, you mentioned in the play the a different way the older generation relates to different communities that the younger generation does. How do people relate to each other? Armenians, Kurdish, Greeks, Jews? Yeah, I mean, it's very, that really does depend on, I think it's a very generational thing, yeah. And I think it's a political thing. I think if you're progressive and if you're young, you're likely to have stronger connections because traditionally the Kurdish and the Armenian communities have had a stronger streak of resistance to the state have had to have you know so so for example there are there is a very obviously the, it's not to be compared the kurdish community with the jewish community there are mil millions of kurds in turkey but they're much more engaged in politics etc you know the armenian community is a bigger community in turkey but they still have there is an mp who is armenian who is very vocal who is very progressive who is very you know, um, who is very uh, present um, in the in the political sphere, and so if you're so, I think if you're young and if you're my generation and if you are perhaps progressive, then you uh, per, you know you might be closer to other communities, and I think if you're older, you share a past, you share a kind of uh, you share a destiny. <laughs> about what you've been subjected to that's the truth i think there is a solidarity that of for my father and my grandmother's generations that's about what they've had to go through they have had to go through very similar things they've been subjected to very similar 
kind of um, injustices. Of course, very different. The Armenians, there was a genocide. There was no Jewish genocide, so to speak, in Turkey. You know, there were all sorts of things. Uh, but I think there are similarities. So I think people feel, I think people feel a closeness, uh, you know, to each other. But then, but then different communities and different parts of the communities choose different ways of surviving. And I think really, for me in the play, the thing that I really want to address is how does one survive as a minority, you know, in such a climate? And what are the different answers to that? Should we speak up and try to change the system and be vocal and be aggressive about it, you know, aggressive in our, you know, in our, in our stance? Or should we conform? and keep quiet and get on with our lives and try to not upset the situation. And I think different people have different answers to that question. And they're all, I think, somewhat legitimate, to be honest. I have to say, the more I write the play, the more I feel, uh, I, I, I feel fine. I mean, I feel fine. I'm not so critical about what the elders of my community have been doing for hundreds of years, effectively you know, because they are scared and that's understandable. Recently, I mentioned your name to a Turkish uh, technician uh, of theatre. And I mentioned you as a Turkish person and I'm just gonna say this here because I think it's relevant. Uh, and he says, oh, but he lived, I don't know where in Europe and, and really he's not Turkish, he's Jewish. Like the, there was that um, and then I, kind of didn't uh, react to that and they repeated that. Um, he's Jewish, he's not Turkish. Like, um, how do you <laughs> find that? <laughs> well, that's the story of my life, really. I mean, you know, I um, my parents gave me a name, Philip, which I suppose is uh, whatever it is. It's French, it's a little bit Greek, it's a little bit French. My, my mum's family come from Crete. So the, the, there, there is a sort of a Greek uh, sort of speaking uh, element to my mom's side. Um, so when I, in every one of my encounters, I have to justify and I have to, from the first moment, say, but, you know, I'm Jewish, that's why. But then people say, but you speak such, such good Turkish. And <laughs> all of that. I actually, I actually have a middle name which I also use when I don't want to have that conversation. I've had, I, I, you know, my, for, the, for the better part of my life, I've been debating with myself when I encounter somebody that's Turkish, which of my names to give my first name or is my middle name? My middle name is Isak. And usually when I say Isak, it's okay. Nobody sort of says too much because it's sort of from, it's from the Bible, you know, it's Isaac, and, you know. So, so they accept it because there are people in Turkey who are called Isak. So... It's a choice for me when I meet a Turkish person. Do I say I'm called Philip? And then within about three minutes, I have to tell them, listen, it's just because I'm Jewish. That's why. That's why my name is sort of funny. But I am Turkish. I grew up here, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I just find I found it very curious. And, and to me, there was a tone of othering in the sense, yeah, like you're not Turkish, but you were born there. You grew up there. What, what that makes you not Turkish? And it's like... Um, yeah, and then I asked them their religion and they're like, oh, I'm atheist. And it's like, so <laughs> it matters where you come from, but not where they come from, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I know it's complex as well, yeah. because I also know, like in your play, 
like uh, the Jewish community might refer to Turkish people as the Turk or the, the older generation. So there, it's never, you know, black and white, I know. Yes, I absolutely agree with you that I think it's a dynamic and both, both are involved in that dynamic. There is no doubt about it. I believe that to fit in, to assimilate, to be part of the majority is what people really want. I mean, maybe not consciously, but I can't imagine people wanting to live in a ghetto. I can't imagine people wanting to live with insecurity, with fear. So I think probably if it was possible to open up the minority's brains and look into their thoughts, I'm sure their deepest feelings, it would be not to have to suffer being othered all the time, <laughs> you know. But of course, if you ask them, they probably put, put, put that in terms of wanting to hold on to their identity and their language and who they really are, you know. The other thing I wanted to mention is we, we met in a Zoom recently uh, run by yourself uh, through Mena Arts um, that focused on how we felt after the happenings, which is the, the recent anti-Semitism manifestation in the play Rare Earth Metal at the Royal Court, where an evil land-grabbing millionaire character was originally called Herschel Fink. I was just wondering, um, how has this experience been to you since uh, this happened? Could you describe what happened and, and what's come up for you? Uh, yes, I mean, uh, I have worked at the Royal Court and I love the Royal Court on many, many levels. And I also, I have to say, have some had some difficult experiences there as well. Um, yeah, I mean, it's very difficult, of course, that should not happen. But at the same time, I suppose as a Jew coming from a country which was very anti-Semitic and living in with a lot of anti-Semitism, I am somewhat resolved to uh, a certain level of living with a certain level of anti-Semitism, you know. And I suppose, um, unfortunately, there is a sense in me, I, I suppose I shouldn't be saying this, but of accepting that, you know. Uh, however, I think England is a very different place. I think today we're at a different, in, in, we are in a very different sort of time in a way, following Black Lives Matter, but also generally in terms of identity politics, people are coming together and have the courage to speak up, you know, and and I think it, it's that's really, really positive. And, and people at the Royal Court, I think are probably, I, I know, I think are willing to listen and to improve themselves and to try to understand how it is that these prejudices continue to be alive within their buildings. Yeah, and it's not a an only case, right? This is just endemic of, of a bigger thing. It's like, it's just a representation. Yes, for sure. Yes, I've been, I've definitely been subject to anti-Semitism in this country in the theatre business several times, you know. Um, there's no doubt about that, you know. And how... How do you feel anti-Semitism differs in Turkey and in, in the UK? I think in Turkey, I don't think people even realize they are being anti-Semitic, anti or at least on one level anyway, on a, on a daily level. People are just like, but you're not from here. <laughs> it's, it's very disturbing and very difficult to live with on a day-to-day -day basis. It's like living, you know, it's, I think it's a very... Um, I, I find I find it difficult to live with that. I think in England, anti-Semitism is something that's 
shouldn't happen, of course, and people usually understand that. Even though, and going from the kinds of anti-Semitisms that I've been subject to here, by people in the theatre world, for example, even though it continues to exist in a way that I think is much more subtle and in a way that I think is much more um, implied, you know, rather than explicitly spoken. I mean, for example, in the Herschel Fink case, which I think is a very good example, you know, perhaps they were using a kind of stereotype, you know, to try to tell a kind of story, which is the stereotype of sort of the money-grabbing Jew of Shylock, effectively, you know. And, and somehow this stereotype is, uh, we can use that somehow, you know, we are allowed to use that stereotype. And as a matter of fact, people put on Merchant of Venice all the time, and Shylock is on stage all the time, you know. I think that play is extremely anti-Semitic. You know, I've worked and I've studied that play, and I've no doubt about that. I think it's not just anti-Semitic, it's a, it's a study, it's a, it's, it's an, it, that play that plays, I think, objective is to demonstrate why the Jew is a problem, in my opinion. But somehow, in our theatre world, Shylock is allowed to be on the stage all the time. And so if we grow up with Shylock, then why not use that as an example, you know? Use it as a, not as an example, use it as a, as a tool. It's a storytelling tool, in a way. But it's a very problematic storytelling tool, you know? It's like Othello, you know, that could be a storytelling tool, you know, but, or, you know, any, any of these other uh, characters. So I think anti-Semitism in this respect that I've encountered is, is very different, you know. Yeah, and what I found for me, it was just for such a tool to be used today, like it just felt suddenly like all this history coming back, like in one, yeah, it's like it hasn't gone anywhere kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for example, uh, one uh, once I was told by a director, you know, you can be more Jewish, you know, more more like a Jew, but I think not in, for example, and uh, you know, uh, and I think the, the well, the director was trying to sort of talk about being more greedy, being meaner, you know, in in, in that oh. kind of a way, you can be more more you know, more sort of uh, foxy or or sharper and all that kind of stuff, you know. And then they actually realized it and sort of pulled back from it very quickly because of, I suppose, my reaction, you know. But, um, but for example, that was one, one. But they were using that as a tool, you know. It was a, it was a, it was a communication tool, you know. Uh, but of course, it was one that happens to be <laughs> serious, that, has, that, that down the line has serious repercussions for a particular community. Is there a place where being jewish meets joy for you of course yeah <laughs> yeah yeah definitely it's always really bad stuff isn't it <laughs> no 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 yeah definitely definitely this is very very joyful <laughs> wow that's a really tough question i wasn't expecting that i suppose of course at the moment in relation to this play much more focused on uh, elements uh, on, on the more difficult uh, streaks of our history but i mean at different times just now i'm focused on that but at different times i used to play music you know for a while i was a percussion and i played turkish jewish music and that's really got something special to it and it's a very particular kind of music uh, and i really adored that but also you know when i think of growing up 
within the community and celebrating holidays, I suppose there's always lots of joy in there. But I suppose with this play, I'm sort of focused on something else, I guess. You know, I think I'm focused on criticizing something about my community. You know, I think I'm just now, I would say I'm, I'm, I'm focused on wanting to question something about my community. Can you tell me about Turkish Jewish music a little bit? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's um, Sephardi uh, music is is really great repertoire. It's massive, you know, uh, and it, uh, it's been explored in many different ways uh, by people all over the world uh, in Turkey, but also in Israel. There's a big Turkish Jewish community in Israel. After 48, you know, there was a big kind of move and particularly poor people uh, went, poorer people, poor parts of the population went to Israel. And um, some of them really uh, worked very hard and created great archives. Um, um, and it's uh, it's a beautiful, um, it's beautiful, it's beautiful music because it's got kind of uh, influences of ancient Spain. And that also has been explored by people like Hordi Saval. Um, and uh, it's also got lots of Turkish elements and Anatolian elements to it. Uh, it. It can be very soulful and sad, but also really upbeat. Um, it, it's effectively a folk music, so it's not a it's not a classical music like uh, like other kinds of uh, uh, Turkish music might be. But uh, yeah. Uh, and there's great bands, both in Turkey and in, in Israel. I mean, there's an incredible singer called Yasmin Levi. I did a show with her at the National Theatre. Her father was a Turkish guy, and he's he's created a huge archive of Turkish Jewish music. And she's a great singer of that archive, you know, and she sort of blends it with flamenco and uh, all of that. And sometimes it's sung in Ladino. It's always Ladino, yeah. Yeah, it's always Ladino. All the lyrics are all in Ladino, and there's great lyrics. There's a there's a song. There's songs about recipes, <laughs> about about aubergine recipes, about seven ways. There's one song which is great. It's about seven different ways of making aubergine. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> it's great. I love you know. It's really humorful as well. You know. Yeah. What would be your hopes for Jewishness or Jewish theater for the future? Maybe more communication, I think. I think I'm kind of excited about the idea of there being more discussions and connections between different Jewish practitioners. And I think also I'm excited by the idea that Jewish practitioners might communicate with other members of other minorities, you know. And in a way, Mina Arts is part of that, you know, within that, that directory, there's people from all sorts of places. And it's a very wide, it's a very large community that includes lots of different people. And I think the exciting thing about that is that people sort of communicate and exchange experiences and have access to different kinds of experiences. Yeah, I think I'm kind of excited about the idea of discovering different and varied voices within the Jewish world, um, as well as within all the, all the all minorities global jewish voices is hosted by me victor ss edited by tony olani pekan and produced by the global voices theater team this podcast series is supported by arts council england to hear more about the work of global voices theater 
visit globalvoicestheatre.com or follow them on Twitter for news and updates on at Global Voices TH or Global Voices Theatre on Facebook. To find out more about my work, visit victorss.com or follow me on Twitter and Instagram on at Victor S's. Mm-hmm.